So I want to say uh, from the outset that I think this psalm invites us to do something that's rather difficult. It might not seem that way. The, the command that kind of underpins everything here is that very first one, bless the Lord, which maybe doesn't sound hard. In fact, maybe it doesn't sound like anything. Bless is not actually a word that we use that much unless, of course, you're from the South, bless your heart. Everyone else, I think, doesn't use the word bless a whole lot. But it's actually something that we do all the time. Bless is just simply the idea of wishing well upon someone else. So, you know, if you're at a restaurant and your server says, enjoy your meal, that's a blessing. Or, you know, if someone says, have a nice day, or if you're feeling especially casual, have a good one. It's just a form of, of blessing. More often than not, when we're blessing, it's just kind of a, I don't know, just an expression of politeness. But occasionally, blessing is something that's actually very sincerely meant. You know, if we have a really close friend who's about to have a difficult job interview, we might say to them, man, I really hope it goes well for you. That's, that's a form of blessing. Here, we're told to bless God, which, which when you think about it, kind of feels a little strange. I mean, what, do we say to God, you know, have a nice meal? I mean, have a nice day, enjoy your meal. I mean, that doesn't feel right. God is in control of all things. He has all things in his hands. He's the sovereign who rules over for all. And so when scripture speaks about blessing God, it's a little bit different. It is, it is saying to God, we rejoice in the fact that you are God. So in Revelation, you have this time where these creatures are singing to God, worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power. And what they are saying is, we are glad, God, that you are God. We rejoice in the fact that you are in control, that you are the center of all things. And, and that's what we're invited to do here. Bless the Lord. Which, again, if we are, I think, honest with ourselves, maybe we'll recognize that that is not actually that easy of a thing to do. I mean, maybe when life is going really well, we are able to say, God, I'm so glad that you are God. But what about when life is really confusing? When life is really frustrating? When life is filling us with anxiety or if we are finding ourselves in, in a situation in life where we just really, really did not want this to happen at that moment? Is it something we can say, it's, I'm so glad, God, that you are in control? No, there's a part of us at least that says, God, I want to be the one in control right now. I wish I were in control. It's very hard for me to rejoice that you're making the decisions for my life right now. There are times where it is hard for us, earnestly, authentically, with all that is within us, to say, God, we rejoice that you are God and we are not. And it is precisely for that difficulty that this psalm is written. Did you notice who David is speaking to in this entire psalm? It's not to God. I mean, a lot of psalms are prayers, but God is not being addressed at all in this psalm. It's not even to us. It might seem like he's talking to us because he keeps on talking about you, you know, that you know, he forgives your diseases. He, uh, sorry, he heals your diseases. He forgives your sins. But the you isn't actually us. Do you notice who he's talking to? He's talking to himself. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And soul here, he's not talking about just like the spiritual side of him. He's talking about his self. In the same way that right after all that's within me, he is sensing within himself this hesitancy to bless God. And, and, and so he says, self, you and I need to have a conversation about this. 
And I actually find just even the very existence of this psalm really encouraging. Because what it tells us is that if we find it hard to truly rejoice in God being God, which sounds awful, but if it's true of us, we're not alone. David, the one who wrote most of the Psalms, kind of like the worship leader, he is having to give himself kind of a persuasive pep talk to lead him to a place of truth. And think about this. These Psalms were sung throughout the ages. Jesus sung this Psalm. And so there's a sense that even Jesus was able to sing the song in a way to resist temptation, to hold on to the reality that his God is someone who should be blessed. It should encourage us to know that we are not alone if we find it hard sometimes to celebrate who God is. But there's also something about just the very existence of this psalm and how David handles things that I think is instructive. So there is a preacher by the name of David Martin Lloyd-Jones who says that one of our challenges as Christians sometimes is that we, we listen to the wrong things. Here's what he says. He says, here's our problem. We allow ourself to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Here's what he says. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Do you, do you know what he's talking about? I, I do. I, I'll say, every Sunday morning, actually, honestly, when I'm preaching and I wake up, there's a part of me that goes, why do you think you can preach this? Do you actually believe this enough to be able to say it? Do you, have you prayed enough over these things to be able to say it? There is some voice that is coming inside my head, that is speaking to me. Do you know what that's like to wake up and go, I can't do today. I, I'm so overwhelmed. This is too hard. We have these voices that speak to us. And, and what David Martin Lloyd-Jones says, and I think he's right, is we need, instead of just listening, to actually say, self, you need to sit down and I need to talk to you. And that's what David does here. Self. If you're having a hard time blessing God, it's because you don't understand things rightly. It's because you haven't yet considered all the facts. Let's have a conversation. Let me help you to see. And so this morning, because David obviously doesn't just write this for himself, it's, it's recorded as a psalm for others. It is recorded for us. So I'd invite us to just kind of try to have this conversation ourselves as we're listening. I'm just going to kind of work through this psalm, and I invite you to try to just kind of open yourself up and almost like speak to your own soul as we're listening to this passage together, and, and to try to hear this. Some of you, like for me, this is something that will be familiar to you. These aren't going to be new truths, but it's good to hear them again and to remember them. Some of you, this might be something that you're not sure actually this is what you believe. And, and I would invite you even to just kind of open yourself up to just hear and explore the possibility that they are pointing to a beautiful truth that you have not yet experienced. So our psalm kind of goes through three movements. And David begins with just kind of this, this call to remember. 
You know, you see this in verse 2 where he says, Bless the Lord, self. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And don't forget his benefits. Or another way of putting it is, remember what you can expect your God to do for you. If you are in a relationship with God, remember what he is going to do for you. What is God going to do for you? What can we expect? If you think about it, it's actually a really important question. If, if we have placed our trust in God, if God is our God, what can we count on God to do in this life? Well, that's where the psalm goes. And you notice in verses uh, 3 and following, he just kind of lists who does this. He's a God who does this. He's a God who does this. This is the kind of God that you have. And the very heart of that is in verse 5, uh, where he says, He is a God... Sorry, verse 4, he is a God who redeems your life from the pit. Uh, I don't have much experience of pits. Perhaps you don't either, unless you work in construction. There's not many pits around, but in that time, they were all over the place. People used pits for all sorts of things. People would dig deep pits as cisterns so they could draw water in dry areas. People would use pits for storage. People would open pits to trap animals. And one of the dangers, of course, of pits is from ground level, you cannot see them. And so if there are pits throughout the place that are kind of hidden, you can imagine how it's not uncommon for like livestock to accidentally fall into these pits or even occasionally for a human being to fall into one. And imagine that. Imagine, you know, maybe you're in the forest, maybe you're chasing after your sheep or something like that, and you're, you're walking and not looking where you stand, and boom, suddenly you feel yourself drop. And 15 feet later, you crash into the mud. You might have sprained something. It's dark, and, and, and you're bewildered for a moment, and then you look, and you, you can't see for a while. And, and then your eyes begin to adjust, and, and all you see around you is just mud. You know, maybe, maybe the top is more narrow. Maybe it's like six or eight feet wide, but it's gotten wider over here. And, and you figure out, okay, I've got to get out of here. But you realize there's nothing to climb. There are no roots. There's, it's just mud and rock, and it's tilted the wrong way. And, and so you start kind of almost thrashing around, trying to find something to get out, and you can't. And so you just start calling out, could someone get me out of here? Could someone get me out of here? And, and at a certain point, after hours of calling, you realize there is no one around. And there is no way out. And it is dark. And you are stuck. And you're not sure you'll ever get out of here. Let me ask you, do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like to have had something happen to you in life where suddenly you find yourself in a place that it, it could be terrifying, it feels dark, it can feel alone, and, and no matter what you try thinking about how to get out of it, you cannot get out, and it doesn't feel like anyone else can get you out, and you are just stuck. Perhaps some of you even know what that's like right now. Do you know what it's like to be in the pit? Well, here is what David reminds his soul. Here's what he invites us to remind our souls. Remember, your God is the God who redeems you out of the pit. If we are in the pit, we, we should imagine this, this ladder being lowered down and God coming down and reaching out to us and grabbing us and bringing us out of the pit onto dry land. That is who your God is, we are told. 
He is a God who does this no matter why you are in the pit. Sometimes if we find ourselves in a situation like this, it is completely not our own doing. We're diagnosed with cancer, and we don't know how we're going to go on. Or someone has hurt us, hurt us so deeply that the the effects of the trauma just continue to stick with us and we don't know how to escape it. We are in a pit that is not our own doing, but even though we can't do anything, God can and God comes down and brings us out and rescues us. That's the kind of God who we have. He's the God, we're told, who heals all your diseases. But sometimes the pit that we're in is entirely our own fault. We have made this very pit. We are the ones who have dug it. We've made some really bad choices. Or maybe it's not even choices that we are aware of when we made. Maybe we just kind of snapped in a certain moment in anger. Or, or maybe there was a time we were so overwhelmed that we failed to act in the way that we should. But whatever the reason, now we are stuck here and stuck in the awareness that everything about this moment is our own doing and we deserve it. And, and we probably feel like there is no way that there is anyone who would be interested in, in bringing us out. But that is not what it says. Not only is God the one who heals your diseases, but he is the one who, it says, forgives all your iniquities. God still lowers down the ladder. He comes. He pulls us out. Self, David says, do you realize this is who your God is? Your God is the God who, when no one else can hear you, hears you. Who, when no one else can see what you're going through, sees. Who, in the middle of the darkness, shines light. Who, when no one else can help you, he comes down and he is the one who brings you up out of the pit. That is who your God is. And, and ask yourself, David continues to say, what does God do after? Does, once he brings you up out of the pit and you're standing on dry land, does he just kind of like wipe off his hands, kind of wave farewell and walk away? No, what does it say happens after that? It says again in verse 4, he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Or that could be translated, he surrounds you, almost like an embrace. He surrounds you with steadfast love and mercy. Steadfast love is like the opposite of the shallow niceness that sometimes people experience. Steadfast love is this deep, fierce commitment to see good happen to someone no matter what. It's, it's the way a mother cares for her child. No matter what her child is going through, she will fight to make sure her child is doing well. That's steadfast love. It, it is rock solid. The word here translated mercy can also be translated compassion, and it's about the idea of being moved by someone's suffering, of a, a deep kind of empathy where when, when someone sees someone else in pain, they feel pain with them. And, and David says, that's the kind of God you have. You have a God who surrounds you like an embrace with steadfast love and mercy. So speaking in human terms, this is all analogous, but there's a sense where we're being told that when God pulls you out of the pit, he is up there and he is crying with you, feeling the pain that you have experienced. And he is fiercely saying, I will never, ever leave you. I will make sure that whatever needs to happen, happens to care for you. In fact, that's where it goes after. Who is our God? Our God is a God who delights Verse 5, who satisfies you with good. 
so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He doesn't just care about your safety, soul. He cares about your desires. And he is intent on satisfying your desires. It took me a while to understand this idea of satisfying your desires so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. But then think about what is it that makes us feel so weary? It's, It's disappointment. It's disillusionment. It's hopelessness. Soul, David says, your God will make all of those disillusions become untrue. He will satisfy all of your longings. He will give a lightness to your steps so that you will feel young because that's who our God is. Our God is the God who who pulls us out of the pit. He has already done that. If, If you have placed your faith in Jesus, God has already rescued you out of death and sin. And our God is doing that. Throughout our lives, we will find ourselves in moments where we, either through our own doing or else, we are in difficult situations, and we will see again and again God answering prayer and showing that He is a God who is deeply committed to us and cares. And He is a God who will do that. On the the last day, death will be no more. Sin will be no more. All of our deepest longings will be satisfied Tell your soul this, that this is your God, that he is a God who sees you in your darkest moments and is pulling you out and has this steadfast love and this compassion and this commitment that will not ever cease and he will not rest until you are deeply satisfied and joyful. This is who your God is. But the soul who hears these things will have a fairly natural response. How can I know? I mean, these are nice things to say, but how can we be sure that this isn't just wish fulfillment? This isn't just us wanting to believe things to help us get through just the darkness of life. How can we know that this is how God is? Which is the right question, right? Because... There is nothing valuable about just pretending that life is different than it is. We want to actually believe what is true about God. So so how can we know who God is? How can we actually know what to expect of God? I mean, it's not an easy question to answer because it's not like there is a science of God where like you can study physics, you can study God. God can't be studied. He's so far beyond us. How can we know anything about God? There's only one answer, I believe, and that is we only can know about God what God chooses to show us. And that's where David goes in this continued dialogue with his soul. Verse 7 in the section of 6 through 9, remember he says, He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Let me tell you, soul, why you can believe this, because God has shown us. He made known his ways. What what happened when we were stuck in the pit of Egypt, when we were being enslaved? Verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. We know because we have seen it. He pulled us out through the Red Sea. He did all of these things to rescue. That's what we have seen. And in a way that David could never understand, we have seen even more, haven't we, that this is a God who who rescues from the pit because God saw us. He saw humanity in in our muck. And he entered 
He became one of us. He, he, he stepped in the mud with us in the person of Jesus. He went even lower than we possibly could imagine, taking on our own sin, identifying with us in our sin, going to death on the cross, going lower than we are, and then rising again to bring us up out of the pit. This, this is what our God has shown us. This is who he is. And he hasn't just shown us with his actions. He also shows this with his words. After God's people were brought out of Egypt, there's a certain moment where Moses is on Mount Sinai and he just says, God, show me your glory. And that's another way of saying, God, please show me what kind of God you are. And God says, here is who I am. He, he kind of gives him a summary of who he is. I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. That's what is quoted here. The Lord is merciful and gracious, verse 8, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. How do we know? Because he's told us. He's told us even more fully. Jesus is the word of God. Every time we see Jesus welcoming the outsider and the outcast, every time we see Jesus healing the one who is sick, every time we see Jesus saying, come to me, all you who are weary, we are seeing God say, this is who I am. I am a God of steadfast love and mercy. When your soul says to you, how can we know? Say back to your soul, why do you think anything other than this? What basis do you have to believe that God is not this way? Here's the basis I have. God has shown me. God has told me this is who I am. Isn't that enough to know that this, this is true, that your God is a God who rescues you from the pit? And the soul then perhaps in response says, but you haven't considered all the facts. Maybe this is the kind of God that our God is. But have you thought about who you are? I mean, think of how insignificant you are. Verse 15, as for man, his days are like grass, flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. Do you realize how short and insignificant your life is and how big how unimaginably big God is. How can you believe that God would be interested in you? And even if he is interested in people, in other human beings, have you taken a moment to think about who you are? Not the person that you pretend to be before everyone else, but the person you are the things you have done, the things about yourselves that you, you try to hide from everyone, including yourself, but you know deep down to be true about yourself. Do you really think that God would want to be kind to you? Do you recognize that voice? That is the voice sometimes of the soul speaking to us. But, but David responds, well, I think you can almost imagine saying, so you might have a point if, if God treated us 
as we deserve. If that was the basis for how he chose to relate to us, if he related to us based on what we have done and what we deserve, but that is exactly the opposite of what God has chosen to do. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. In fact, if you want to imagine how God sees us, it's the very opposite. Verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Imagine getting to the top of a mountain, and you look on one side as far as you can see. And then you look to the other side as far as you can see, miles upon miles. The psalmist is saying, however far that is, your sins are further from you than that in God's eyes. He does not use that at all to evaluate how he cares about you. He does not see those sins. It's probably impossible for you to imagine that anyone could see you apart from what you have done, but that is not how God sees you. God uses a different way of seeing you. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That is his basis, not based on what you've done, but based on the fact that he loves you like a father loves a child. Those of you who are fathers, in your best moments, isn't it true that no matter what your son or daughter does, there is nothing you would not be willing to do for them? And we're flawed. God is like, just have that in your mind and just imagine way more. And that is how I am towards you, as he puts it in verse 11. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Imagine on a cloudless night looking and seeing stars that are billions of miles away, that have taken thousands upon thousands of years just for the lights to get here. As far as that is from you, as high as that is, the love of God is even greater than that for you. Yes, you might be small, you might be short-lived, but, verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. We are small, but his love is great. No matter, it does not matter how, how small or insignificant we are. It does not matter what we have done, as terrible as what we have done sometimes might be. The bigness of God's love overpowers the smallness of us. The, the greatness of God's love makes insignificant even the worst things we have done. It, it does not matter how, how inward-facing, how twisted, how broken your soul, your very being might be when God looks on you. He loves you as a father who is a good father loves his children. Your God is the God who rescues you from the pit. Your God is the God who embraces you with steadfast love and mercy. Your God is the God who satisfies you with good things. And it does not matter what you have done. He loves you even still. And if we can just, even now if I can just, allow that reality to kind of settle in, do you know what it means? The bottom line is something really simple but really good. You are secure. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you 
are secure. It doesn't matter what you might face in the future. It doesn't matter what mistakes you might make. God is there with you and he is committed for your good. And you do not need to be afraid of your future because you have the God who pulls you out of the pit. And if we can just kind of breathe that reality in, then, then I think our souls can slowly become convinced of what David was seeking to convince his soul of, and that is, it is good. It is good that our God is God. If we can hear this, then we can join with David in these final verses where he basically calls everyone, bless the Lord, you his angels, bless the Lord, all his hosts, bless the Lord, all his works, and then he concludes, bless the Lord, oh my soul, and as we hear what he is saying, we can say, amen, yes, God, worthy are you of all glory and honor and power.